Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 94. Um, this episode, I'm going to deal with early Boston Japaners. Um, and we must remember that uh, this, quote, shinoiserie or Japaning, uh, Japaning was more of a copy, utilizing shellac-based products and, you know, gold powders and gold leaf, gold foil, as opposed to using the real deal, Yurushi lacquer, which was used in all the Oriental countries, which is really durable stuff, but very dangerous to work with. So, so you know, Japaning, particularly in this country, was um, nothing new. It was trying to mimic a lot, which, which was already done in England and, and actually happening in France, too. So, so the term Japaning was used from the, say, the 1600s and around 1700 to mean the art of painting in varnishes after the manner, as we just said, of Yurushi lacquered cabinets and screens imported from the Orient, China, and India, as well as Japan. Although the Occidental imitation was by far the most elaborate process ever developed by Western craftsmen, it was still much more intricate and more expeditious than oriental lacquering. Stalker and Parker's book of 1688, which their book is about finishes and finished recipes, indicates that Japaning was then well advanced in England. In 1758, the term was defined in the Handbook of the Arts as the art of covering bodies of grounds of opaque colors in varnish, which may either be afterwards decorated by paintings or gilding, or left in a plain state. Hepplewhite wrote in 1789, For chairs, a new and very elegant style has arisen within these few years, the finishing of them with painted or Japan work. Japaners have gradually discarded oriental motifs and adopted the classic ornaments popularized by the Adam brothers and even perpetuated by Hepplewhite and Sheraton themselves. Japaners who migrated to America followed the styles they had learned abroad. In their advertisements and inventories of the early 1700s, almost every furniture form is listed except chairs. Only after the revolution did Japaning become a favorite finish for the chairmakers. It also became a very popular as a finish for tinware, both in England and America. A shining brown and black coating, made largely of asphaltum and varnish, hardened by f firing. And this was a common background upon which the Japaner lavished his ornamental skill with bronzes, gold leaves, and colors. But through the intervening years between 1850 and the present, all suggestion of painted design has departed from the term. Early Boston was a haven for Japaners, though their intricate work in costly materials precluded ready profits. Other cities like Salem, Newport, or even New York might boast one, one Japaner, but Boston had nine or ten. Some Japan pieces were imported from England, and we find it difficult to segregate them from those made by local craftsmen, since most of Boston's early Japaners had probably learned their craft in England. And only after a careful study of internal construction can a Japan piece be accepted as American-made. 
Usually judgments rest upon the use of maple for drawer fronts, since the japanner rests upon the use of a fine closed grain surface, which would make made it ideal for the painted backgrounds. No pores. So there is, I think, a little more crudity in American Japanning and a tendency for the craftsman to do his finest work only where it was most conspicuous, right on the drawer fronts or on the, the facades or aprons. The sides of high boys, for instance, betray economy, most non-conspicuous. So it is difficult to assign our Boston-made furniture to the individual Japaners who ornamented it, for they left no signatures and the pieces were constructed by various cabinet makers, untrained to do this highly specialized finish. Skill with cabinet making and joinery tools was far, far different from the handling of gold, bronzes, and, and various finishes in camel hair pencils. First came Namaya Partridge, who advertised in the Boston Newsletter, March 31st through April 7th of 1712, that he did all sorts of Japan work at his shop in Tremont Street near the Orange Tree. This was 18 months prior to the branching out into the selling of paints and uh, wholesale brushes. His second advertisement ends with the statement, likewise, all sorts of Japanning, painting, and all sorts of dials to be made, and done by the said Namaya Partridge at reasonable rates. So he... He departed from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, somewhere there after this, and died before 1726. So his son, William Partridge of Portsmouth, he married Mary Philback of Boston in 1718, and later apparently married again by records. And his entire state was administered by his widow, Sarah Partridge Levitt. In 1760, Ambrose Vincent advertised that he had 28 pipes of very good Madeira wine for sale, lying in the cellar of Murrows Randall, a Japander, and Roland Dyke, a wig maker. In 1717, Randall had a wife, Mary Butler, for he signed with her and others a deed conveying certain land and privileges to John Wadsworth, a mariner. Randall advertised importing looking-glasses, lamps, and lanterns in the Boston Newsletter of August 17, 17th through the 24th in 1719, adding, There is likewise Japan work of all sorts done and sold here, and looking-glasses are new quicksilvered at the same place of the above said. In, 19, in 1736, Randall was listed as one of the occupants of the property, consisting of two houses, one of brick and one of timber, belonging to James LeBond, merchant, situated on Tremont Street next to the land belonging to the First Church of Christ in Boston. In 1759, after 44 years of business in Boston, William and Mary Randall received from their father's estate a lot of land with a brick house therein, situated in the north end of Boston. Alas, a scant three months later, and they were forced to pledge this property as security for a bond to John Rowe, since William Randall stands just in debt to the said John Rowe, 
in the sum of 66 pounds, 13 shillings and 4 pence. Again in 1773, the same property was seized to satisfy the claim of David Jeffries, gentleman of Boston. Women Mary Randall married in 1717, and they appeared to have or adopted a son in their, their old age. So we stumble on a document in about 1772, which reads, I, William Randall, and Mary, my wife, for divers good causes and <coughs> consternations, and for the just sum of 400 pounds paid by Robert Gould of Boston, a merchant, as he in trust of our son Thomas Randall, a minor, for the use and benefit of Thomas Randall, to convey him, please convey that message to him on Bank Street, consisting of a double brick dwelling house. Joshua, Joshua Roberts was a Boston Japaner whose only known record at the time of his death in 1719. It is barely possible that Randall had learned his trade from Roberts, or that he may have employed, been employed by Roberts. Although he was Roberts' greatest creditor, Randall added to his own losses by personally paying the funeral expenses. The family diary-writing judge, Samuel Sewell, appointed Randall administrator of the meager Roberts estate. The entire estate was valued at 26 pounds, and debts greatly exceeded that of that amount. From the inventory, I can select the following items as helping us to visualize the Japaner's workshop. Seven papers of German powder, sundry papers of Metz and colors, a parcel of varnish and brushes, a parcel of tobacco pipe clay, two stone bottles and six glass ditto, a small parcel of gum sandarac, one iron stove, two working tables, 13 books of silver leaf. So very simplistic what's in this uh, what's in the shop of the Japaner, these early Japaners. The Boston Probate records are a fertile field for information concer concerning these early Japaners, since virtually all of them died insolvent. The inventory of Robert Davis, a Japaner, shows that he died in financial distress in the year 1739, that he had an extensive establishment compared to poor Joshua Roberts, two work tables, and an iron stove to hug. Davis embarked upon a scheme of exploring sundries with Mark Tecoloni, a mariner, probable master of a ship carrying these goods to Philadelphia and Jamaica, or other unnamed destinations. So among Davis's creditors, claims were three pounds due to John Smallbert, the eminent portrait painter who also sold painting materials, and 32 pounds due to William Randall Davis, as his estate was valued at 638 pounds. His inventory enumerates besides sunrays. An ad notation lists books, looking glasses, tinfoil, quicksilver, and other items indicated that Davis silvered mirrors as well as japanned all kinds of furniture. In no other Boston Japaner's inventory is blue small listed. One old treatise of the art of Japanning says that blue Japan achieved with ultramarine or fine smalt and white lead was a very complicated process. Many applications and washings with the cleanest size <coughs> being indispensable 
and the finest results were often obtained as long as the materials were clean and they were up to date and the water was clean. So a little mirror that I, I had seen in Boston some years ago has a distinctively blue background on the basis of which I'm inclined to attribute, <coughs> attribute this to the hand of Robert Davis. The pattern is ably done with a well-controlled brush and shows this craftsman to have been quite equal to the decoration of tea tables and highboys. Yet apparently Davis did not do Japan work in relief. There is no sign of it on any mirror, and there is not the slightest mention of writings or using any type of whitings, clay, bowl, or any gum sanderac in the long list of materials that was once in his shop. So the Davis inventory was signed by the best known by his best known colleague Thomas Johnson, and, and William Price, who styled himself as a merchant in his will, but in the Boston Gazette of April fourth through eleventh of seventeen twenty five, he put an advertisement, to be sold over against the west end of the townhouse in Boston, all sorts of looking glasses of the newest fashion and Japan work, chest of drawers, corner cupboards, large and small tea tables and dome after the best manner of the, the late of London. Also prints and pictures, varnishes which preserve them from the smoke and files, etc., etc., all sold at reasonable rates by Mr. William Price, New York. The enumeration of Japan items matches closely the beginning of Robert Davis's inventory, even to a rare corner of rare corner cupboards. If Price was selling, Davis made pieces then we may conclude that Davis's work, working period in Boston from 1725 to 1739 in the middle of our Queen Anne style. Concern is, concerning Thomas Johnson on, or Johnston, as his descendants of all always spelled his name, or other <coughs> signers to Robert Davis's inventory, we have no shadow or doubt. The Metropolitan Museum has published his elaborate trade card engravings by himself in 1732, describing his varied abilities as Japaner of all sorts of furniture, coach, chaise, and sign painter, and vendor of looking glasses. At the top of the card is depicted a swinging sign ornament, ornamented with angel heads, and the arm from which the sign is suspended supports a long-tailed iron lion of noble linen lineage, these cherub heads suggest attribution to Johnson and those high boys and low boys which have a similar motif in their decoration. Johnson appears to have been made an able Japaner skilled in ornamental relief figures. So, again, let's, let's just go back to this. Yurishi um, Lacquer comes to the Asian countries. And these Japaners in Boston, just like they were in uh, in Philadelphia, um, were using shellac. Um, and for years, this all started in the early uh, 1720s, um, as the regional furniture style of England in general moved over to Japan, the or I'm sorry, over to China, the Chinese were building or trying to emulate um, similar wood structures, and they were putting their chinoiserie on them. 
And when some of these came back to England, the ladies and the interior designers were so enamored, they just went well, well over the top. They just had to have one piece or two piece, or they wanted a certain piece to be Japan. So they started sending pieces over to China on a slow boat to China, as we're going to say. And that slow boat, um, that slow boat was a slow boat. It could take six months to get to China. It could take a year to paint, two years to paint, and six months to a year to come back. And it may never come back. So the English um, art scene, furniture makers, um, sent over, and these individuals accepted about 15 uh, cabinet makers. So they were going over to China to build the various pieces of furniture on a trial basis and let the Chinese put on their Yerushi lacquer chinoiserie and then ship them back and make a lot of money. Um, but what happens is what we found is a lot of these guys that went over to China started having affairs with the Chinese girls, ended up marrying them, and the whole um, scenario of sending pieces to China to have chinoiserie put on or to build them there because these were cabinet makers totally fell through. So they ended up marrying all Chinese girls and they never came back to America. Um, so that was a problem. Um, they actually tried to import individuals from Oriental countries from Japan and China into England to have them actually uh, decorate the furniture with uh, Japaning or chinoiserie that the English were making right there. They gave them a nice comfortable home and paid them a nice salary for the period and that was another option. So, uh, And then 20 years later the Americans caught up on this Japaning idea as the English were still struggling through it um, because these later pieces that were called Japan just did not have the look. They didn't have the depth and they didn't have the feel. It's almost like using plaster and, and, and uh, sheetrock in a house. Plaster has a certain ring and resonance to uh, voices and noises where sheetrock sounds cheap and tinny. So, um, you know, this is the best comparison that I can draw in this. Um, so this 20-year lag existed and then they started making uh, quote japanning using a shellac base or a varnish base but it wasn't the yurushi lacquer base so their pieces just don't last over a hundred years 200 years if not um, putting some kind of wax and emollient into the surface of the japan painting and the piece itself the the Japaning will literally start cracking and falling off. It has absolutely phenomenal bite to it because it's partially lime-based, so it really bites to anything. It could actually bite to glass. So, uh, um, so it was interesting, an interesting scenario in evolution because everyone uh, was just gaga over this these new Chinese motifs and styles. So, so let's uh, let's push on a little bit here. So, whereas John Waghorn is lately uh, received a fresh parcel of materials for the new method of Japaning, which was reinvented in France for the amusement of Benedict of the Ladies, and is now practiced by most of the quality and gentry of Great Britain. So he has also moved from the South End to find the house uh, that he was likely tenanted by Mr. Leblond for the convenience of his scholars, and such ladies as desire it. He will attend at their own houses, but to make 
the expense less to others, he designs a school of five pounds for each scholar, and to begin on Friday the 30th of this instant. So, in England, they started trying to do these um, schools after about 10 or 15 years after Japaning was in. But Japaning had a very quick peak of about 10 years and in America and in England, and it started going downhill from there. So, the last craftsman to do the Oriental type of Japaning appears to have been Stephen Whiting, also a merchant who advertised in the Boston Newsletter on November 5th of 1767 and on May 16th of 1771. So these uh, Oriental-type mirrors were uh, to be sold by Stephen Whiting, the son, a glassman and Japaner, at his shop in Union Street opposite the cornfield in Boston. So the following articles, which were imported in one of the last ships from London, and this is what it says. Sconce and pier looking glasses with neat walnut frames, plain and gilt. Glass plates silvered of different sizes for bookcase and doors. Small glasses of almost all dimensions, suitable for traders in the country. Looking glasses and pictures imported from London to be sold by Stephen Whiting at his shop a little below the cornfield. The new frames made for old glasses or new glasses put to old frames. Also varnishing, japanning, and gilding done to frames of all sorts if you own one of these frames, as well as, <clears throat> as well and as reasonable as any done in this provenance. So, as the great thundercloud of the American Revolution rolled over Boston, business was paralyzed and the arts came to an abrupt halt never to be resumed in the same sumptuous elegance that had once characterized the mid-eighteenth century in colonial America. So by 1780, every vestige of the oriental type of Japaning had disappeared. The mandarins, the coolies, the fishermen, pagodas, and bridges that had arched from island to island totally vanished. The clipper ships from America might sail the seven seas and bring back rare fabrications from distant lands. But never again did our local craftsmen produce such masterpieces in gold, silver, and varnish as the Commodore Joshua Loring's High Boy. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservation, signing out. Um, Anyway, I hope everyone got uh, a a taste and feel for Japaning. And I must say, Japaning actually comes in uh, very dark green, there's instances where I've seen clock cases and secretaries in a in a turquoise uh, scarlet red was very big black a black and red tortoise was very big so these are multiple colors that the pigments would be added to either the shellac varnish mixture or to the urushi lacquer if they were done traditionally but isn't this always the truth is things started out from China and Japan, these very, very durable type finishes. But as we go, and it's the same token in our society, everything that's made starts getting watered down and watered down and watered down. The quality's not there. The attention to detail is not there. The articulateness is not there. So it's it's become a problem. I think it's the way of the human being. 
I mean, look at the way people had dressed in the 19-teens and, and depressions and food lines and, and, you know, the stock market instances. So just look at how they were. And, but yet they wore a suit, a tie, and a top hat. And look at people today. Um, so it's just an example. I mean, today people go to malls and they lumber down in their sleepwear. I mean, a better day may they may have their their uh, their sweatpants on and, and, a, and a, a type of s- a sweatshirt or something, but today it's they're they're running around and actually sleepwear. It's become impossibly insane. So, and hence the way anti- antiquity is gone. Antiques were so hot around the teens, the twenties, the thirties, the forties, right into the war, and they never rebounded. When when they went down, they didn't really rebound into the early nineteen seventies, and they had about a ten year run, and then everything simultaneously crashed in in nineteen eighty eighty one, where all these things have been devalued. And I've said before, I used to have clients in their 80s and 90s that I would maintain uh, their entire collections once every quarter go to their house polish their furniture uh, do any repairs necessary um, but they don't those kind of clients don't exist that's my biggest problem for the position I'm in when it comes to doing furniture and or clocks their kids come to me their kids want me to uh, give them an appraisal of the value. So just suppose dad's clock collection was worth $1.3 million, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. And I'm and his son is standing in front of me and is telling me he wants to buy a new Ferrari with this money of the clock collection. And I'm saying, sorry, sorry, sir. You know, your, your whole collection's only worth 175000 not 1.1 or 1.4 million like it once was for your father. So... New reality check here, um, even as these things happen in our stock market in 08, a totally new reality check. So, And it's it's a lack of desire, and the money's there. We see people spend money on crazy stuff, crazy stuff, and young people, old people, middle-aged people. But uh, it's a change of style. It's a Maybe it's a less encumbered lifestyle. Don't want to travel with too too much stuff on my back, you know. I prefer to move around on a very light basis. I, I maybe that's a possibility, but who knows? Been brainstorming this one for a long time with my colleagues and friends here and in Paris. But anyway, Greg Perry, uh, sorry for that long-winded expose. Signing out. Thanks for listening.